All righty. So, Naita, welcome to CWC Chatting with Creators. I'm so excited to have you on this show so you can talk about your personal journey with being a composer and also your work on the Netflix documentary, 14 Peaks, Nothing is Impossible. For our fans who might not be familiar with your work just yet, would you please introduce yourself and your project to the audience? Okay, thanks, Safai. Um, Nanita Desai, I'm a composer, media composer for screen, I guess, film, TV, video games. Um, and uh, I guess I'm known for having scored a lot of documentaries, though I'm uh, scoring a lot of dramas and, and features, fiction features as well now, and uh, the odd occasional video game. Um, so 14 Peaks, Nothing is Impossible um, is a feature documentary that uh, is now showing on Netflix uh, worldwide. And it's um, incredibly inspirational. It's the story of Nims, um, Nirmal Nimsdai Purja. His name is short, short for Nims. He's this fearless, fun-loving Nepalese climber on a quest that he dubbed Project Possible, which was to summit all 14 of the world's highest mountains in just, well, in less than seven months. And the previous record holder did it in over 14, uh, well, there was one that they did in 14 years and then another one in seven years. So Nims did it in less than 14 months and he took a team of uh, his uh, Sherpas with him. Uh, he climbs Mount Everest, K2, Annapurna, you name it, he did it uh, through extreme conditions. And it's the film is a thrilling, action-packed story about courage and perseverance uh, and what it means to push yourself to the limits of human endurance. So for me, it was... It was my own personal mountain to climb as well. It was a massive challenge musically, uh, one that I uh, I relished. I get altitude sickness just thinking about every aspect of that story, from the composing part to the actual just act of climbing. I go to a waterfall in Colorado and my body's already like, and now we are going to take a moment to feel extremely nauseous. <laughs> well, I, I worked on this for quite a few months, several months, and I was cold in my studio the entire time. I had a, it was freezing just watching the mountains on the screen. Um, so uh, so talk about method, method composing, you know, I scored it in the, in the heart of winter in London. So it was cold in my studio. And uh, just to get myself into that mount mindset of being up in the mountains. Oh, God. <laughs> well, especially, with, oh gosh. I'm just thinking of playing the guitars with cold hands and my, I, oh, that does not sound like the best time for my limbs. What were your first thoughts when this project was brought to you and they told you the story and they asked you to compose it? What did you think when you first heard about it? Well, I've always wanted to score a mountaineering film, you know, these uh, a film, a, a, the type of story that makes you wonder what do you, you know that pushes human beings to the to the edge of what they're physically capable of, and um, and you know the, 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 
these amazing stories of taking you on the highs and lows on the extreme emotions and and this film has it all so it's quite daunting for me but I I really I, I embrace challenges uh you know I I tend to put myself what, what I get attracted to as a composer is to put myself into uncomfortable situations where I don't quite know what I'm going to do and, and so you know obviously the film is about you know encompasses all those different challenges that Nims faces himself and so I I felt that you know I'd always wanted to score a mountaineering film and um and, and also suffering from blanks, blank computer page, door page syndrome. You know, where do I begin? What, you know, what is this film truly about? And there are two characters in this film, you know, that I came to the conclusion. One is Nims, and he encompasses all this, this incredible variety of emotions that you, you're, as an audience member, you're taken through um, from... Uh, you know, from drama to intimacy to to love to tragedy to danger and tension, and so that's all encapsulated in the music. But but also the other character are the mountains themselves, and and that was that was quite daunting. You know, when I was thinking about it, how am I going to portray these mountains? And luckily for me, the director had strong a uh, strong creative vision and a direction that he wanted me to go down, which was to create an epic symphonic score uh, to, to represent, to mirror the size and the scale of the mountains. And, and I, I've never done that before um, with my scores. It's something that I really wanted to, wanted to do, you know, write an epic symphonic score. And, you know, we, Luckily, we managed to record the score at Abbey Road with a huge string section, but it wasn't without its challenges because we worked right through the period of COVID um, uh, when it came to recording. It was it had its own technical challenges. So, so we have you know two two characters, Nims and the Mountains, and I was incredibly inspired by the cinematography. I'm a very visually inspired composer. You know you can. Um, I find it, I mean, I, I compose in, uh, and, and approach scores in very different ways. Um, and with this one, it was a fairly traditional approach, which I haven't actually done that much of, funnily enough. So that, so that was quite refreshing for me, you know, to, to do, um, to get picture, you know, rough cut, and then uh, work with temp music, uh, which is the bane of a composer's oh. life. But that was fine, actually. That was great because you know I got to make the score my own, and the and the team were a joy to work with. We had a very close working relationship with the director and the editor, and the execs just left us to our own devices, and we could do what we wanted to achieve, which was really lovely. And everyone was singing from the same hymn sheet. You know, we all wanted the same thing, and and we also saw eye to eye. So that was a really pleasurable experience because sometimes it can be a little bit tricky working with different voices uh people wanting different things so uh, so i do my mock-ups on my computer and and then uh, at the end of the day uh, you know i'd get that all approved and then we just recorded the score um you know with huge string section at uh, at abbey road um but um yes i mean in terms of 
pro I mean that that was basically my process you know I I, uh, I have I work in Logic Pro I have um, every library you can think of I'm a, I have a fetish for buying everything there is out there uh, you know sound libraries um, and Spitfire and orchestral tools and you know all the, the the usual tools that we have but also when I and and it can seem to be a a conventional score in many respects but I tend to veer away from convention um, because of my musical upbringing I um, I don't follow and because of my I'm not formally trained in music in a I don't have a degree in music and so that has always forced me to tell stories and find different ways of telling stories uh, through through music so so yeah so it was, it was quite an interesting process for me uh, because it was new to me but probably conventional to most other composers in the way they write you know mock-ups um orchestrate uh, record mix and deliver yeah i i also work in logic pro and as soon as you were saying new stuff, Spitfire just came out with a new library and it took all my willpower when I got the marketing email not to just hit buy. Now, <laughs> I didn't even like see what it was or listen to it yet. I'm like, I think I should buy this. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it's, a, it's a dangerous, uh, potentially a dangerous addiction, uh, but I, I, I'm much more selective. I tend to um at the beginning of every project i will um look for an excuse you know to sort of be inspired i mean the visually i'm very inspired as a composer as i said and just looking at the mountains i think yeah i kind of know what to achieve what to do here uh but how to achieve that is is a huge challenge when you have a blank blank page and um and i'll sort of search for unusual sounds I'll develop a, a unique sound palette for every project that I work on I I tend to not work with a standard template uh, I mean even with an orchestral score uh, if I'm writing an orchestral score I don't have um, a template that I'll stick to um, I I do what I, ha I do have um, track stacks you know sometimes I'll have um, long strings track stacks or or short brasses you know short strings and just as a quick way of bringing elements in but I will always create um, and spend time I love to research my subject matter and and what I so I sort of that's my my way into a project is to research research the subject and the characters or I'll read the scripts if it's a fiction project or I'll um you know I'll, I'll look you know watch films about mountaineering and see what's done been done before and uh, and then go right i'm not going to do that i'm going to do something totally different and uh, and not follow um conventional paths um so yeah um but logic is logic is great and it's just a tool you know it's uh, it helps me achieve what i want to achieve absolutely kind of bouncing off of all of that uh, whenever I prepare to do one of these interviews, I go and, you know, like cyberstalk all the websites, look at previous interviews and stuff. Cause you know, just like in composing, I don't want to ask you all the things that have been asked before. Um, 
Something I thought that was really interesting though when I was looking at past talks was you said that each mountain had a different musical challenge. And so I was wondering if you could talk about how you did that, you know, musically and in your composing. And, you know, as you probably remember, this show is for composers, our audience is composers. So you can nerd out a little and get as technical or non-technical as you want when you're talking about it, because the people who are listening really want to know how, how did she do this? Cause it's kind of awesome. Well, um, I, mean, I mean, yes, there are 14 mountains, uh, Sapphire. And I th the challenge that I had was actually the same challenge that the filmmakers had because they didn't want to, you know, Nims goes up, a mountain he comes down he goes up another mountain and he comes down and yes he has problems along the way and so we didn't just want to create this um sort of boring uh, journey of going up a mountain <laughs> 14 times and, and and there were different challenges for nims um, that brought out different emotional aspects for each mountain. Um, for example, um, Annapurna is really, really dangerous. I think the the, fat the fata fatality uh, rate of, of um, statistics for Annapurna are 29%, so, uh, which means you have a very high risk of dying. Uh, and, and when you're watching the film from the comfort of, of your own home, you don't really perhaps quite appreciate that. Um, but it's incredibly dangerous. And so the very, the very first mountain, when you arrive, the very first musical sound you hear at the beginning of the film was, you know, this feeling of immense dread and uh, darkness to try and evoke this sense of the hostility of the landscape around you. And so you hear this descending bass and cello string slides that you know like they're going <laughs> and and you hear that amongst the space and the isolation of the mountains and with each mountain um when nims was on his on this this almost impossible journey um when he's going up some mountains he's actually saving people's lives and so you you hear okay let's portray this mountain in a very heroic way when he climbs k2 and he's on the summit of k2 there's a really heroic theme a melodic theme that comes out um that uh, that i wanted to bring out and you hear that a couple of times in the in the in the film um and then there are moments of um you know tragedy when he's going up and you see people's lives have been lost as well and you you know and you and, you, and that really hits home when you realize um how how dangerous a mountain is because he makes it look so easy and and so musically you know we're bringing out different emotions for oh, with, with different mountains as he's traveling um you know some sometimes it's there's a sense of tragedy um sometimes there's a sense of fear sometimes there's a sense of heroism and um and the other thing i wanted to bring out was what makes you know diving into the subject diving into the character uh, as well as the mountains and the um, and and the journey itself is what makes Nims do what he does, 
and that's that was the key to the film and one of the things is what makes him tick is his relationship with his mother so uh gosh sorry where you, i don't know if you can hear the thunder and lightning we're in the middle of a a storm at the moment with heavy rain here in London. You're all good. Your soundproofing is just fine. I actually <laughs> have to mute myself because the sound of the lawnmower decided to go past my window. Oh. And I have my mixer up on my screen because, you know, I just got to be having everything ready to go. And my sound shield, I have foam sound shields against the wall. We're, the mic was still picking up that lawnmower. <laughs> So that's I why I was muted, but I I wasn't seeing anything from the lightning. So you're good on that. <laughs> no, I can't hear anything on your side. Um, so uh, yeah, well, I've lost lost my thread. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you know, portraying the, the mountains are a real character, you know, and 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 uh, yeah. Sorry, I was saying about what makes Nims tick, and this this relationship between him and his mother, and uh, and that's what drove him. As a as a young boy, and uh, and his personal relationship, his long suffering wife, who's who's gorgeous and adorable, and she uh, she's she puts up with his uh, you know his his absence for long periods of time, and and there's a piece towards the end of the film. It's it's kind of the emotional climax of the film. I mean, it is not him having climbed the mountain but when he's reunited with his mother. And that was the most, um, uh, sort of one of the hardest pieces and one of the most hardest pieces, but, but one of the most emotional pieces is mother and son, when his mother is very ill and, uh, and she makes it um, and she comes by helicopter to see him uh, in, in Nepal, uh, you know, after he's achieved the uh, broken the world record. And, uh, and I wrote this um, solo violin piece for, for him and his mother, which was quite emotional. Yeah, I one of the things I think is really cool about this documentary with Nothing is Impossible is kind of, you know, the mom's health journey also kind of seeming impossible, as well as just the mountaineering journey. And I think you really tackle both just beautifully. And I also really appreciated that use of solo violin for such an intimate moment it was a really cool way to see that orchestral contrast, you know, especially when, you know, he's scaling those mountains, we got our full ensemble, and then we have this singular, intimate moment. And I think that solo violin section is personally for me, one of my favorite parts of the score because it's so different and really brings you in. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that was really important to me. And, and one of the reasons why, we chose to go with a symphonic route is, uh, you know, using strings that could match the physical um, scale of the task at hand, um, you know, using this uh, little string, descending string slide motif to represent the, the, um, the mountains and, and the, the hostility of the landscape and, you know, how, how difficult a terrain it is to traverse but also um, you can bring the strings down to this singular element and suddenly it becomes much more intimate and, and strings 
and the orchestra has the ability to be able to achieve that breadth of uh, emotional variety and scale that we needed uh, for, for the score. And this is why I love writing for orchestra. <laughs> yeah, but, but I also wanted to bring in other elements. You know, I, and, and like I said, you know, I, I like to veer against convention. Um, and um, for example, these, um, I mean, representation is really important to me. And, uh, and one thing that this film was trying to, you know, the, the message it was trying to get across was that, you know, a lot of Western climbers historically have climbed, you know, um, have, have been mountaineering for decades. And behind these Western climbers are these Sherpas, these Nepalese guys who just, um, they're the ones who are guiding them and taking the climbers up the mountains. They're the ones who are uh, creating the lines you know when I say the lines that's they're, they're creating the paths by digging their equipment into the mountains and hammering into these lines which guide the mountaineers up and down again and so they're risking their lives they physiologically what's really interesting in the film is physiologically their um, bodies are adapted to be able to do, uh, absorb more oxygen than uh, than westerners so they are used to living and working at high altitude and they're carrying 30 to 35 kilograms of weight on their shoulders like donkeys you know they're carrying everything and, and doing the hard work but when they come down and you know these world records are broken and they've climbed Mount Everest you know they never get acknowledged for all the work and 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 the thanks uh quite often for the work that they're doing and so um this film tries to remedy that. And, and so I wanted to bring in musically occasional touches of ethnicity in, within the score, but not, not to portray it in a very heavy handed way, but just to shine the spotlight on their heritage and, and the locale of, you know, of Nepal and the Himalayas. So the way that I use the strings, you know, we're using conventional orchestral instruments mainly strings and brass and percussion but i'm trying to portray it in a way that brings in this hybrid touch of ethnicity like um, you hear the raspiness of the asian strings in um, a couple of tracks like life decisions is one of the tracks on the album and and you hear the plucked strings on uh, one peak at a time uh, so i'm using these unusual string techniques. I've worked with the London Contemporary Orchestra because they're used to experimenting and using extended techniques. And the sound that I wanted was not this clean, not this warm sound. It was like a really edgy, gritty, grating, grating sound for the, for the strings. And that was aggressive for them to represent the mountains. And, and um, from my background, having uh, studied the tablas, which is this Indian cursive instrument, I'm really, um, I've always had a spot, soft spot and, a, and a found, my foundations are in world music and, um, and working with world musicians. So I love bringing in these unusual time signatures. And I, you, you know, there's a lot of uh, rhythm 
uh, you know, driving, pounding, incessant rhythms within some of the pieces that push you along, you know, to take you on that on Nim's journey. But the drums, some of the drums I'm using, and and the actual the rhythmic patterns are very rooted and inspired by Asian uh, musical culture. Um, so, uh, so you know, I really enjoyed doing that. And the lead violinist of the London Contemporary Orchestra, who plays on Mother and Son, she's um, she's uh, from Kazakhstan herself. And uh, Galia Besengalieva, she's just the most incredible violinist. And so she really portrayed that that music. You know, she's leading with, you know, authenticity is really important to me. And so, you know, her sort of ethnicity brought a lot to the score as well with, you know, pieces like Mother and Son and um, and some of the rhythms and the way the time signatures of the rhythmic patterns of what the strings are doing. Um, there's, a, there's a cue when the hardest challenge for Nims actually wasn't necessarily climbing the mountain, it was raising the, the money for the project itself. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene in the film uh, where he's fundraising and, you know, this social media is coming into play and it's supporting him and he's raising the money, uh, which was a really tough journey for him, uh, for for the project, for the mission. And, um, and you hear the cue and you're hearing these slightly Asian-based sort of string techniques and, and scales, musical scales that I'm using. Uh, to get that across, but in a very sort of a semi-subtle way, not not over um, over manipulative or over not so heavy-handed. I hope uh, in the way it's used. Yeah, I think that was so cool. When I was first listening to the score, I was actually you know finding my ear challenged to figure out if it was you know uh, traditionally uh, Asian instruments or if it was extended techniques on um well i have uh, western uh, instruments and so it was a fun challenge well one of those instruments there i'm pointing to that's a kamench and uh, i've got um, a variety of plucked stringed instruments so um that would help in terms of a little bit of the mock-ups in terms of the initial ideas that you know i'd sort of play or just badly bow something uh that that sort of that central asian violin and um and then i you know work replace it with samples and then eventually we replaced it with um with real strings but um but it was you know it wasn't uh the musicians were just amazing um and they sort of were able to capture the essence of what we were trying to achieve really really well um so it worked out fine in the end did any of your actual playing make it into the final score um let me think actually no no i think we i mean it, it was played in with mock-ups i mean it wasn't all replaced it was quite a hybrid score so the only uh, what happened was uh with the recording i was we weren't planning on re- um, having any real instruments at all and then um with all my mock-ups uh you know i spent a lot of time on them and perfecting them and uh, I use sort of reverbs are really important creating space within the music was important to mirror that the landscape as well and uh, so we use a lot of sound design and um, 
sound effects are important to work in tandem with the with the score. Um, but um, but no, I didn't. But what happened was uh, I did all the mock-ups, and then the crew were meant to the production team were meant to go to America to film to the states to film some interviews, and because we were going through traveling through the time of COVID. Um, they didn't actually make it out there and they saved so much money mm. that uh, they said, well, what should we do with the money? They did all the interviews over Zoom and, and remotely. So they saved a bunch of money and they said, well, look, why don't we blow the money on the score and, and have real musicians? And that was just, yes, you know, it was a real, it was a real treat. They were very excited um, and really happy with the music. And I said, look, if you're going to do, if you're going to record live, we, we could really do with, you know, having real strings. So the brass samples, the percussion samples, and there are, there are some electronic elements in a subtle way, but all the strings are live and we recorded it at Abbey Road studio, um, in, in the big studio at Abbey Road. And it was the largest string, it was the largest orchestral session um, since lockdown, since we were all isolated. So everyone was thrilled about coming back into the studio. There was a real frisson of excitement. Um, we, have, we were socially distanced and uh, we were only certain number of people allowed in the control room. And we had to, there were 30 string players and we went into the big room. I can't remember, was it Studio One or Studio Two? I can't remember now, but we were in the big room. And even though we could have, um, we could have all fit into the smaller studio, because of social distancing we had to go into the big room and that actually helped sonics of the um the acoustics of the actual final recording because it had a lot more space to it um uh, the way that it was sort of recorded with with separation and 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 all the mics and and the way that we're pacing the score within the landscape of the film you know there it may seem that there's a lot of music, but there isn't that much music. I think there's about 50, 50 minutes or 55 minutes of actual proper big music and uh, over the 90 minute film. And then there's also, you've got the other extreme of very minimalist drones and textures, which it was like recording a lot of the strings as quietly as possible. Uh, so that it's, they're almost at the edge of silence. And that created a lot of space as well with the with the drones and the textures, which are not on the on the actual score release, but they're but they're in the film. And so, you know, we're getting a lot of strings playing very, very quietly. And that created a really unusual ambiance and, and texture as well. So um, but sound design was really important uh, because I started off as a sound designer on on feature films and so for me it's like you, you can tell stories through sound through all sound not just through music and so you know you could hear you can hear the crunch of the feet and, <laughs> and the boots on on the in in the snow in the ice and um and not to have that bombarded with wall-to-wall music so um so that you know the sound of the wind and the the ambience at the in the mountains and of course some of the recording was quite poor so we needed to make sure that we could hear all that as well with them um, 
with, uh, you know, the, it was recorded with, Nims filmed it himself. He filmed, he's, uh, I think he recorded over a hundred hours of filming um, just when he was, you know, his whole journey of climbing up the mountain. So, so that was, um, so some of the footage was, wasn't wonderful. So that was a tough challenge in terms of mixing and balancing how to, uh, how to sort of blend it very well with the poor audio recordings. Yeah, of course. So kind of taking a step back and looking at all of these things, you've had such an interesting journey as a composer. I remember I was honestly a little shocked when I went on your website and discovered your degree is in math. Um, and so you've had such a large range of experiences and how you always, you know, try to push the boundaries instead of being, you know, fitting the standard and tropes. And so I was curious, what was a lesson from your past, any of your life experiences um, are fair game that you were reminded of when you were working on this score? Um, yeah, interesting. I mean, everything, everything, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, when you're, when I'm scoring something, I mean, I, I, I tend to put myself in a, in an uncomfortable position, you know, where I've, I've never done anything like this before. And I sort of embrace challenges. And, and in that respect, you know, the parallel with NIMS taking on an impossible challenge uh, and overcoming all the obstacles, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, there are a lot of parallels there. But um, I mean, in terms of, you know, planning uh, is, you know, I had to be incredibly organized uh, and that's something, you know, I, from my having studied mathematics, I love, uh, it's not the actual numbers themselves, but it's how my degree in maths has informed how I will structure a piece of music. And, mm -hmm. and so I do love rhythm a lot. And, and so that informed a lot of, you know, my, when I'm, when I'm uh, writing a piece of music, because of my background in maths, there's an equilibrium and a balance to the way that I will um, construct and structure a piece of music. There's this inherent um, yin and yang and it's sort of like a tension and release that I don't think of consciously, but it's just in, it's um, imbued into the way that I approach uh, composing. Um, and so, and I mean, everything in my studio has to be organized and, you know, my desktop, you know, just that my degree in math sort of informed that. I love the beauty of numbers. And so when I'm structuring a piece, you know, and a lot of the pieces in 14 Peaks, they're based around, start off around rhythm. And, um, and, and that sort of, uh, and I loved sort of those complicated time signatures and, you know, having studied tubler and, you know, that background that's sort of imbues everything I write. But I, and I like, there's this balance with chaos and order. So, you know, that sort of mathematical sort of everything is just so, and the precision and accuracy is important. And there's the order there, but I, I like to allow you know, when I'm having everything that's organized around me um, from from my computer and my desktop to my file organization to, um, 
you know, to the way that I will structure and map out a piece of music in, in logic, I also like to allow for chaos uh, to happen because uh, that's where the magic happens. You know, it's like that, that element of unknown and that's, you know, that creativity and, and spontaneity that those happy accidents that happen when, you know, I'm uh, playing something and it might be, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll sing things into, into my door, uh, especially when I'm, uh, most of my, a lot of my inspiration comes when I'm not in the studio. Um, mm -hmm. you know, that because the door, sitting in front of a door can constrain you so much that you're used to working in a very regimented way and so I like to, you know, if I'm going out or I'll go for a walk in the park or go shopping even, I'll always have my phone with me and I will be thinking and cogitating about, you know, how am I going to handle this? Or even if I'm not thinking about something, I'll just sing ideas into my phone, uh, into my audio memos, and then I'll come back to the studio and play it back a few hours later or the next day. And I think, if that's if it's still sounding okay, then I think okay, that idea is worth pursuing. Um, mm. But melodies often come to me when I'm oh, when I don't have a click track on, um, and I'm just playing randomly, you know, just playing and playing. Um, or I'll watch the film, and you know, just watching watching these scenes um, on my computer screen. And I will just sing ideas. Um, so a lot of it comes from my vocals, um, which uh, because it means that I'm not. Uh, I mean, yes, I play with my keyboard uh, into into Logic, but I I like having acoustic instruments around me, or I have um, as another instrument. If you just give me a second, yeah, um, I've got this uh, hang drum, which is which I love playing with, and. Um, it's um and uh, and it's very therapeutic and I just it frees me up and it's uh, I just love being able to um, just play other instruments badly because it's um, it just inspires me because I'm not an expert on any one instrument and so I'll just pluck and bang and scrape anything to achieve what I need to achieve um, and then that will force me to go down a different route um, so uh, yeah so all the all of those things kind of in, uh, influence the way that I um, wrote 14 Peaks. That's so cool to learn especially for me personally learning about the handpan because excuse me I recently wrote a piece for handpan and electronics I love you know, all the experimenting that comes with composing. I also play several instruments badly. When I was in Ireland, I bought a mini Irish harp and I, I am not a string player by any realm of the imagination. My primary instrument is clarinet, <laughs> but it's just so much fun to um, experiment. Clarinet. Clarinet, that was great. I'm actually scoring a, a drama series for BBC One at the moment. And um, and I'm trying to avoid using strings uh, for emotion. And um, it's, a, it's a hostage thriller uh, situation in this, uh, this whole series. 
is uh, is a hostage crisis. And so I've been using um, reed instruments. I'm using the saxophone and the bass clarinet and uh, some other sort of bass flutes. So it's all mainly based around reed instruments with, with sound design and music design. Um, and it's uh, using extended techniques. Um, I'm just trying to get away from using strings. And it's really interesting. I love the, what you can achieve with, uh, with, the, reed, uh, with the reeds. So, so that's fun. Um, that's you know, I, so try and, I just try and create a unique sound palette. And, and just use instruments in, um, I mean, I, in a quite an experimental way, in an unconventional way that you're not used to um, using them uh, in in that way. So, I mean, talking of Ireland, I I did a project set in Ireland uh, quite a few years ago, and I went to Ireland just to buy this instrument. It's called a guitar zook, and uh, mm -hmm. it's um, it's got eight strings. It's sitting in my studio corner. It's got eight strings. Um, and it's a cross between a bazooki and a guitar. So it sounds a little bit like a 12 string guitar, acoustic guitar, but it isn't. It's, it's got its own unique sound. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Irish um, drink called Guinness. And mm -hmm. the man who uh, made, made it, he, his thumbprint, his uh, artistic identity is on every instrument he makes. He puts this little black dot and it's called the Guinness dot. Uh, <laughs> on on every guitar he makes um so so yeah i love traveling uh, around the world and sort of having instruments made for me or, or sort of collecting instruments depending on the project that i'm working on that's so cool it's a good thing i don't have grown-up money yet i would have too many instruments well i did it doesn't have to cost a lot of money i did i did a project a few years ago and i used um it was set in central asia and I looked up the, what's the Nash, it was set in, uh, one of the episodes was set in Siberia. And I thought, what's the national instrument of Siberia is the Jew's harp. Mm -hmm. And the Jew, you know, and, and so I got this um, metal worker in Budapest who made me a custom set of Jew's harps. Um, and they're, uh, it's almost like a chromatic scale. Uh, you know, I've got every note of the scale of a different Jews harp playing uh, different notes. Um, so you can actually create melodies out of Oh my them. gosh, that's so cool. <laughs> so, I've, so I've got, and they're, 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 some Jews harps, they create these really low subsonic rumbles. They're so big and deep. And you can check out um, YouTube videos of sh Shaman. Uh, they actually put themselves, get themselves into a trance by playing it for hours on end. Um, and it's quite, quite a remarkable in little instrument, uh, really versatile. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I've got this sort of strange collection of juice harps that I uh, sort of bring out every once in a while for a, for a film, unusual, sort of sample it and create some textures out of it. That's so fun. Kind of bringing things back to center, what does it mean to you to now have an Emmy contending score? And what would it mean to you to have it actually nominated and potentially win and go that far with this score? You know, um, Sapphire, I'm blown away that people actually listen to my music and recognize it in the first place. So that 
that is like an award for me anyway. But um, I think being nominated uh, and, and winning awards, generally, it gives one, um, it gives, it sort of gives me a great sense of achievement having worked on those productions. And, and it's, it's always so flattering, you know, when people listen to your music and, and for me, you know, to be mentioned, potentially be mentioned in the same breadth as other great scores and composers that I really admire is, is always a pinch me moment. So um, I think, I mean, it would be, it would be incredible. Uh, I, I would, I would be so chuffed because the Emmys, I've always spoken of the Emmys in the same breadth as the Oscars. It's, it's the, you know, representing the creme de la creme of what people acknowledge to be um, awards worthy over the over that year. And I think awards generally have this huge impact on the on the validity of of the various areas of our crafts. You know, it's it helps to acknowledge and celebrate the wide range of of um, excellent talent and and work in our field. So, you know, that uh, it would be. Um, and I, I, I can't lie, you know, it would be a dream come true for me uh, because it's something that I never thought that I would be able to achieve in with my career, you know, just to, my dream was to be, to make a living as a professional composer. And that, that was always my dream. And to have, to be doing that, uh, you know, 20, 25 years later uh, and still doing it, um, and still having mountains, my own creative mountains to climb is is a dream come true. And then for people to think that you are worthy of acknowledgement or people are listening to your music and think it's, you know, it's 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 good is is so special and so meaningful. But um, it's the icing on the cake, really. Beautifully put. Well, finally, so this is something new I'm doing with season three of this show. Um, now I'm going to open the floor for you to ask me a question if you have one. Oh my gosh, Sapphire. I mean, oh, where do I begin? <laughs> it's really, that's a, that's a really difficult one. What, what do I want to, I mean, what, um, what, if I was starting out as a composer now, you know, I, there's so much that I would want to know. What is it that you feel you want out of um, established, I mean, established composers making a living uh, as part of your course, for example, um, you know, as part of your degree? Or, it's, or, or what is it that you need once you've graduated, once, you've, once you're out there? In, in the industry making a living? I think what would be really great to see from established composers to us newer composers would be more outreach for potential collaboration or sometimes just, you know, more public sayings of when, you know, assistant ships and things like that are open. I find right now what is hardest coming from, you know, a state institution in Nebraska is I have to put in 
more work than I find with my contemporaries who are graduating um, in London, LA, or New York is they have um, their pro previous professor saying, hey, we found these opportunities that you can apply for for assistantships and internship positions. In Nebraska, you know, those opportunities, we have to go find them on LinkedIn or just scour Facebook and League of American Orchestras and everything trying to find things. So if, you know, when those opportunities come open, making them a little more public, um, I think would be a great step um, for helping out. Of course, you know, with that, there comes the issue of you're going to have a million more applications uh, because of the oversaturated market. And you're going to have probably quite a few not serious applications thrown in there from people who think of composing as just a hobby and not really their profession. And so there are, you know, the cons that come with that. But if it was just a little easier to find those opportunities for, you know, the people who are kind of stuck in the middle of trying to make it through, it could make a big difference. Yeah. It's really interesting what you're saying, because uh, when I started out, there were no apprenticeships, there were no assistantships um, here in London, in the UK. We, we didn't really come from a culture of assisting composers. Um, and uh, I mean, I started off as an assistant music engineer at recording studios. Uh, so, you, you know, you have to have an assistant sound engineer. Um, or, or, or working as an assistant sound editor uh, and apprenticeships within the film industry, working not in the music industry, but um, or in the film music industry, but as working as, you know, assistant hair and makeup and all the other crafts and production design and, and sound editing and so on. But it's never been a part of our culture up until recently where composers would come out of college um, and actually assist composers. And so um, I think it's a great path, but it's not the only path. Um, and I, I, I think more effort should be made to, uh, to have maybe with colleges to have stronger links with industry, I think, um, uh, and having composers, established composers coming in to talk to students, uh, which I do, I, I, you know, I, I really enjoy that. Um, you know, I talk to students at the National Film and Television School. I think it would be good to actually educate filmmakers. Um, you know, there, there are so many established routes and, and avenues to study film music. Um, and, you know, with the sound developers out there, um, sample library developers like Spitfire Audio and, you know, encouraging, um, you know, so many video YouTube tutorials on how to navigate the industry for composers. And that's wonderful. But I think that filmmakers also need to be educated by composers, how to work with composers. Yeah, that would be that would because there's so many filmmakers who don't know how to communicate with composers um, and and take you on that process, valuing what music can bring to a to a film project. Um, I think that's really, really important. Uh, I, you know, I'm working with 
debut filmmakers. I'm working with established filmmakers who just don't know or appreciate or understand how music can really enhance their film in terms of, because ultimately we're storytellers through, but we do it through music. You know, I'm reading scripts and I'm under diving into and researching characters and stories and emotions. And, you know, when I speak to uh, filmmakers, they're expressing themselves um, in terms of emotion, which is how it should be. And then it's my job as a composer to translate the emotional beats into music, which is not an easy thing. It's like this mystical dark heart. And so, so yeah, so I think, you know, it'd be good to see, um, I think anyway, to, to forge links with new composers, with filmmakers and, and get those early relationships uh, going so that you can, young composers can work with student filmmakers, young filmmakers, and both follow each other up the up the ladder and establish those long-standing relationships um, where you're both discovering storytelling together. Um, that, that, I, I, that's something that I think I, I'd like to see more of because it's something that I didn't have when I was um, starting out in the industry. Yes, I completely agree. I have had you know both sides of those coin, that coin as I just finished undergrad. I had a filmmaker who did an animation reach out to me and say, hey, can you compose something for this uh, 30 minute um, animation thing? I'm like, sure. And they're like, can it be done by tomorrow? I'm like, no. One, I still have classes. Two, that's too much music to be done by tomorrow. It was already like 8 p.m. here at this point. I'm like, I'm going to bed in two hours. And they were like, I feel like for a lot of the time, at least from my perspective as a composer, a lot of the student filmmakers are taught music as like the last thing to think about. Um, yeah. And, you know, I will reach out to film students as soon as they, you know, start their GoFundMe of, hey, you guys should donate to my film. And so I find them and I email them like, hey, are you looking for a composer? And they'll say, oh, we don't even know if we want music for this film yet. Um, we'll let you know when we're done with post-production. And then usually they don't email me back and I find the film later and they ended up having to use stock music because it's yeah. the last thing that yeah. they think about. Yeah, yeah. I know, I mean, music, I, I, as a composer, I always like to be brought on as early as possible, you know, and, and it's not going to cost them more. It's, you know, it's it'll be the same budget, but, um, the earlier that you're brought on, the more time you can spend researching, experimenting with ideas. You know, I scored um, a film last year called The Reason I Jump. And I, we were in the edit for 18 months on that film. And it's, it's a long journey that I'm gonna go on with the filmmaker on and off. And one that I really cherish because uh, you're, the film is forming and you're a part of you're a real part of the filmmaking process and it makes you feel really valued and instrumental to that piece of the jigsaw puzzle that's coming together right from the very beginning. And so on 14 Peaks, um, I was uh, with the team 
throughout the entire edit of the film and I think I was on it for about five or six months and and I re you, you it's so much more nourishing and um enjoyable when you're part of you know the film from a very early stage from assembly stage even where they're sending me rushes and and footage from location and I get to under you know just get to know the team and and have these discussions long collaborative creative discussions with the director to formulate a concept and a and, a, and an idea and and you know uh, you know or try things out and they don't always work and it's not a bad thing if it doesn't work so you know all those things are it's it's just great to be um, part of that dialogue and discussion and um, and experimentation process through that through that journey. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, having such great discussion. Best of luck with your Emmy contention and all the fun things you're working on. If you have any clarinet questions, I'm an email away. Um, I will. I will. <laughs> well, thank you thank so you much. So Oh, jinx. Thanks. All right. Well, have a great rest of your day. Bye. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.